0: Hello everyone, this is Ron Small with episode 12 of this podcast, which you can find on iTunes and at SwayProductions.com. You can follow me and the show on Twitter, at SwayProd. On this episode, I spoke with the great Joseph Kahn, the legendary music video and commercial director, who's done a slew of iconic music videos for Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Blink-182, Gwen Stefani, Moby, Eminem, U2, on and on. Uh, Several years ago, when I was going to film school, I really didn't have much of an interest in pursuing commercials. I was very focused, uh, naively so, I think, on producing and directing features. At the time, I made a short film that played at the LA International Short Film Festival. And I went there and saw all these fantastic short films and was really blown away by the amount of talented people spending thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of their own money on their short films and, and doing an amazing job but most of them weren't getting anywhere with them. The whole idea behind a short film was either to be making it as practice, as I was at the time, or making one as a calling card to get a feature film. I walked into a commercial production panel that they were holding at the film festival, and Joseph Kahn was one of the panelists. This was maybe a couple years after he made Torque. Uh, The panel opened with a reel of various pieces of work that the panelists had made, and I was really amazed by the kind of creativity and, and filmmaking on display in those spots. And this idea of uh, being given 30 to 60 seconds or somewhere in there uh, to tell a story, sell a product, uh, make it entertaining, um, that whole notion uh, seemed really interesting to me and and really challenging in a way. Of all the speakers, Joseph was the most memorable to me uh, and the most honest, it seemed, about directing and working in this capacity. And in this interview, he's just how I remembered him several years ago. He wasn't really in a great place when we spoke his new film Detention, a really unique, wonderful, genre-defying film, just opened last week in limited release and is not doing well. The studio that put it out is not supporting it, they're not doing any marketing for it, and they haven't even put a trailer on iTunes, uh, which is a shame because I I do think this will be one of those films like Donnie Darko or or Boondock Saints, uh, which is nowhere near as good as Detention, in my opinion, uh, that finds its audience um, beyond what anyone might think of the film, Joseph made exactly the movie he wanted to make, and he put up his own money to do it. When all is said and done, I think a lot of people will be grateful for it. The people who love this film really love this film. Here's the interview. We start at the beginning. Tell me about how you got your first paid directing gig.
1: I dropped out of film school and started doing gangster rap videos. I did a video for $2,000 on my mom's credit card. And I submitted that to every record label in Houston, Texas, where I'm from, um, trying to sell myself as a video director. A gangster rap company uh, decided to spend some money on me. I took 7,500 bucks in terms of like half the first payment because it was a $15,000 video. And I remember taking the money going, you know what, this is my first big video, but I'm taking money from gangsters. And I would probably be dead if it didn't go out right. I remember there was a lot of screaming from me. I was a big screamer back in the day. I don't think I stopped screaming, uh, <laughs> until about five or six years ago, actually, um, but uh, I remember I was probably like that close to being shot or something because I was just a maniac.
0: Were you scared of these guys at all while working? No, with them? I was.
1: No, I was so naive about anything other than movies. Yeah. I just didn't have any sort of like outer life um, outside of uh, being obsessed with uh, music videos and movies. That I, I just had no idea what exactly I was getting myself into. Um, so I was walking around these neighborhoods, and everybody—I think I should realize it was "quote unquote" dangerous because basically I couldn't get any white people to go with me. <laughs> you know, like
0: I couldn't really get
1: any crew members. Yeah. So I—I uh, I think that was the start of my very, very uh, extensive self-training of like learning how to do basically every department in terms of camera loading or, 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 or. or uh, or lighting, or editing, or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. because basically I just couldn't get any crew members to go into these sort of tough neighborhoods.
0: But um, they were really cool to me. I mean, they, they made fun of me a lot for being Asian, but other than that, they were really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and what, was, what were you shooting that on at the time? Was it like 16mm? 16 millimeter?
1: 16mm, 16 millimeter, yeah.
0: And how did you go from there to, uh, to I guess, moving to LA and, and, and literally becoming one of the top music video directors working? <laughs>
1: Well, I did 30 videos in a year and a half. Um, wow. And after my first video, I basically went into business and opened up um, an office. And um, I think within like seven or eight videos, uh, I started flying to New York and L.A. and submitting my wares. Um, I mean, I didn't get a lot of bites. In fact, I remember <clears throat> going to Capitol Records and the video commissioner at the time basically saying I was a hack and, and I should try another line of business. I, I, it
0: was literally that blunt, you know? How did yeah. you get that meeting to begin with?
1: Uh, I submitted my reel mm-hmm. and then she took a meeting, but I don't know why she took a meeting other than to tell me that I sucked. <laughs> 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 I think I had done like 15 videos at that point and one of them uh, was for uh, a, like a, a German group who actually contacted me through the, uh, through the video I did for $2,000 um, in New York back mm-hmm. at film school. And so they gave me $5,000 and made a video with them. And I was doing all these videos on 16 millimeter. I was editing them on like three quarter inch tape. Um, It was just really, really basic stuff, you know? Like, uh, and eventually, I don't know, like I think I did 30 videos, and at a certain point, uh, this sounds really awful, but I wasn't getting laid in Texas
2: because
1: mm-hmm. when, I, when I decided to become a filmmaker, I was like, you're going to get hot girls because you're a nerdy Asian dude. And unless you do something really <laughs> cool, you're never going to get laid, right? Yeah. So I did like 30 videos, and I think I grossed like half a million dollars in like a year and a half. And on top of that, I actually did get a couple companies to start flying down. I had like uh, Warner Brothers sent me an artist named Ahmad. mm mm-hmm they gave me like 70 G's to do two videos for him. And then public enemy came down and I, I convinced Def Jam to let me shoot them. And that was like a $35 video. Then D. Snyder had a, had a video that I shot with him and I started getting some basic good work, you know? Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and, um, so when, when you started doing that, were you kind of expanding your crew? Cause initially you were just shooting on your own, right? It was just Yeah, I was you. expanding
1: the crew and I was hiring more people, but let's get back to the laid part. Uh, yeah.
0: Let's talk about that.
1: So after about a year and a half of this, like, like, my crew that I was hiring, I was hiring on PAs and yeah. everybody was dating except me. And I just could not get a frickin' date in mm-hmm. Houston, Texas. Because believe it or not, back then, people weren't, like, really aware of what directors did. This just sounds like the douchiest story ever. I'm sorry. But no, it's no, tr- this is great. Go ahead. Uh, like, this is what people
0: want to hear, Joseph.
1: People uh, didn't, like, understand what directors did back then. The media was completely separated. Like, people didn't really know what a director did. They didn't understand, like, what a cameraman is or whatever. And you know, was like, this whole concept, and I was, I was like, this... 21, 20 year old kid running this company with like tons of people working, you know? Right. And I just couldn't get a date. And I was like, you know, screw this. Fuck Texas. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to a place where they know what directors are and will look at my talent and go, like, you're badass. Because I had already kind of figured out back then that uh, all all the statistics, this is how I thought, right? Uh All all the statistics showed that people date within uh, 10 to 20 IQ points of each other. And I was like, you know what? Uh, If that's true, then um, if the average IQ is 100, I'm screwed. I got to get out of here, right? I got to go find someone with at least like within my range somehow, you know? So I was like, the only place that they like directors is Los Angeles. So I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like I was sitting on a swing set. I was doing three videos in a row. Mm-hmm. I looked at my producer I was working with at the time. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get laid or I'm going to kill myself. I'm out of here, you know? And literally, I closed down my business within a week of that decision, moved to L.A., and I think within the first month I got laid. And it, and it changed my life. But I'm telling you, like, I'm telling you this story. Mm-hmm. It, it's pathetic. It's douchey. I admit it. But it just tells you, like, the completely fractured mind I had back when I was 21 years old.
0: It's a great story. And, and, uh, and I take my hat off to you. Because how many people would admit that, Joseph? Well, I mean, I would And by the way,
1: if, if I had gotten laid, I probably would have never le- left Houston, Texas. I'm serious. I would have been very happy being the biggest fish in the smallest pond. But because... Uh, uh, you know, personal issues, you know, you just wanted to be loved. It was, yeah. I was just a very lonely kid. I mean, I never had a lot of friends growing up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you, you end up becoming very good at a certain job, but you have a certain social aspect, a certain life lesson that you, you're not getting out of, out of the work. Cause you know, just me and, and the filmmaking was not good enough. I wanted to sort of experience life. So I moved to LA and it wasn't really to be rich. It wasn't really to, uh, to like even be successful on a certain level, it was literally I just wanted to find love so <laughs> so the, so the strangest
0: thing is I moved to LA for that isn't that funny? It is but you know just hearing that I mean it, it kind of makes me think like do you think do you think about when when you're in LA and you're you're a big director I mean do you think about why certain people are wanting to befriend you or so on because you know there's there's who you are and the fact that you are like you are a huge music video director do you do you ever consider that aspect of it?
2: Uh,
1: yeah, uh, but there, there's another aspect to me too. Is is that I know I am technically um, better than almost anybody. I know this. I know that I can learn any piece of technology, any piece of technique. I, you know, it's just one of my skills. You know, uh, but I also know that I'm like seven years behind, uh, uh, like emotionally, than every one of my peers. You know, like uh, you take an average person that's my age. I am seven years behind them emotionally like, all the time. And I know this. I'm always playing And, and why
0: do you think that is? Because, uh, because of who you were as a kid?
1: Because it took me seven years uh, to just, like, graduate high school on a certain level. Do you know? Like, I just never had a certain level of life experience. Now, the beautiful thing is, I'm, I'm going to be 40 this year, so at least I have a certain level of maturity that I never had when, you know, when I was 21 and basically acting like a 15-year-old kid, you know? So now I'm at, I may be emotionally immature on, like, on a certain level, like, but you know, the things that most 40 year olds do, like, you know, have kids and get married and all that stuff, I haven't really experienced that yet. Um, I'm still retarded. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely living a great life for, for someone in their 30s or late 20s, but um, I am not caught up to people my own age yet.
0: Is that something that you that you want to be, uh, or or are you perfectly happy with um, with your with with the way your your you know emotional development I guess is going?
1: <clears throat> I've learned to uh, I've learned to accept my emotional development. Uh, I've learned to uh, like my uh, place in life. Like I can't complain about it and whatever I learn is going to happen gradually, you know? Yeah. You're sounding like my freaking psychologist. This is awful. I'm sorry, I'll back off. I'm, gonna back off. I'm
0: going to back off. So, you know, what's amazing to me about your career is if you look through um, all the, the videos you've done from Britney Spears, Eminem, Backstreet Boys, uh, Brandy, you, you, you've had a really huge hand in, in shaping youth culture in so many aspects in terms of, of visuals and style and, and and you've continued to do that you know, throughout your career especially, I think, with the tension, which, which reflects in, in comments on pop culture from, from the 90s to now. Uh, what is it that interests you in, in youth culture? Is it, is it just kind of like you're, you're kind of thinking back to when, when you were in high school and, and uh, wanting to do it differently, maybe? Or, or what's, what's, the, what's the interest there that, that's kind of been pervasive throughout your career? I
2: think,
1: <clears throat> man, um, this might be premature to ask me this question at this point in my life, because I'm still figuring things out but uh, I suspect my fascination with pop culture has a lot to do with um, the loneliness I felt as a kid, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, uh, on a basic level, I, I was, I'm part of the first generation that, um, that only heard music through music videos. Like, my parents immigrated from, from Korea to America when I was, like, seven. Actually, we were in Italy before that, but we came to America when I was seven or eight years old, and the first song, the first rock song I really heard, the modern rock song was Joan Jets Jett's I Love Rock and Roll. And I saw it on television, you know? So I was introduced through modern music through music videos. And so every time I've ever associated any song, it's always been to a visual. I've never had that period before where you just heard a song by itself. I mean, eventually you do hear songs by themselves, but my introduction to it was through music videos. Mm-hmm. And so as I grew up, like it was like bifurcated. I it's like I grew up just watching and fascinated by music videos and on the flip side um like like because I didn't have a lot of friends, my mom would like, you know, on my birthday just drop me off. Instead of having a party, she'd just drop me off at a movie theater and let me watch movies all day long. I would we'd get there at like like noon and then she'd pick me up at 10:30 at night and wow. I would just hop from theater to theater to theater and watch movies all day, you know? Yeah. So like, when I think about my sort of uh, growing experience, it's all these music videos and movies. <laughs> that's, that's what I knew, you know? So, uh, so in terms of pop culture, I guess it's the only thing I've ever really known, you know? And it's, it's my way of uh, interacting with the world because it's the only world that I knew.
0: Let's talk a bit about your, uh, your first feature, Torque, uh, which is, is a film that I, I really enjoy and, and return to a, a lot. Um, I, uh, I spoke to uh, a VFX PA on Torque uh, on the first episode of, of this show, and his name's Adam Lizagor, and he's, he's since become a successful director. And he mentioned that in the motorcycle chase climax at the end of the film, which was, uh, which was nearly all CG, you, you gave the note that there should be more crack vials in the shot. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm curious about that. Did, did you tell the uh, VFX team initially to make sure there were crack vials in the shot? Or, or was it when, like, when you saw the shot, you were like, "Damn, I need, I need more of those."
1: Well, one, I listened to that podcast, and I think that guy said I had one of the biggest freakish heads ever, <laughs> which, uh, like, he literally said he was talking about the size of my skull, which, uh, which I, I have to admit, is pretty freakishly big. So I, I agree with him. I am the elephant man. I don't um,
0: think he said it was one of one of the biggest heads ever
1: like I think he said it was freakishly big, and everybody would talk about it. so as far as I'm concerned, if you're talking about the size of someone's head like in a visual effects house then uh it must be pretty big right <laughs> uh but that's all right, whatever I've dealt with it um right, I, I think um I think when it came to the crack vials. Look, when I made Torque, I was in a very rebellious mood. You're catching me in a very lax mood right now. Huh. But when I when I made Torque, I was just very angry because I was fighting with the studio for a whole year. and like like I was just when I went when I when I went into it, like I had a very specific idea of what I wanted to make. I wanted to make an uh like a like a Japanese animation self parodying, mm. over the top, completely surreal, like hyper real um, you know, bike movie with ice cube in it. Right. Right. Obviously the audience for that is exactly one person, me, you know? So one, I think I wanted to just push the limits cause I knew at that point that the film, uh, was being compromised. Cause like, they would like, they would like fight me on edits. They would fight me on script. I mean literally when I walked in on set, like sometimes they would just fax me papers and like, make, make me like, like do lines like that day off fa- fax paper and stuff. So um, I struggled with that film so hard to make it what I wanted to. So by the end of it, I was just like, fuck it, put in crack vials, fuck it, flip that bike, fuck it, put in fire on the road. <laughs> you know? I was going to take it to the max and see what I can get, get away with, you know? And, um, and I, you know, it was just this weird sort of like duality between me trying to push it to the limit and the studio constantly trying to make like their Fast and Furious movie, you know? <laughs>
0: Was there ever a, a discussion between you and the studio or the producers about what the intention was going to be? Was it was were you ever telling them, "Hey, this is what I want to do," and were they like, ever like, "No, I want to, we want you to make this"?
1: Kind well, of thing. yeah, because the, uh, in the beginning there was a, a person running the studio who actually ended up doing all the Transformers films, Lorenzo Devon mm-hmm.
0: Um
1: and he was the head of the studio at that point. And um, I went in there and pitched him the idea, you know, and talked about the humor. And he actually has a really great sense of humor, Lorenzo, you know. So he was pitching me other jokes back and stuff like that. So we had this whole idea of this humorous bike movie with, you know, it's like an action movie with like a sense of humor to it, right? And then, and then he basically got fired a week into making the movie. No, actually, it was a week before the movie he got fired. And then, and then sort of like the new team w- wanted to make like, something completely radically different for me, and I was just screwed. And at the point, I sh- what I should have done is probably quit, but actually I couldn't because if I quit the movie at that point, knowing that they wanted to make a completely different movie, I would have been like the Hollywood director that quit a movie, which might- is actually kind of worse than like being the guy that actually finished a movie. And, and it was bad, it's like to quit a movie or get fired off a movie, it's just because, it's just a big black stain on you. So at that point, it was really a matter of like surviving the experience and trying to retain as much control as possible.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and by the way, back then, I didn't really have as many social skills as I did now. Again, being I think I was 28 when I made the movie, so I had the social skills of a 21-year-old. <laughs> so uh, I was just a very combative person. I know how to deal with that a lot better now because I've done commercials for 10 years now.
0: What was it about that particular script that appealed to you to to initially kind of hook into doing that film? Because I, I'd imagine at the time you were, I mean, you were a huge music video director, and, and and Hollywood was kind of grabbing a lot of music video directors to do movies like you know Zack Snyder with Dawn of the Dead and so on. Were there a lot of other scripts uh, that you were looking at?
1: Uh, I had been f- I had been fired off another movie about four or five years ago. Before that, for uh, a Chris Tucker movie um, called Double O Soul. Uh, was about a black James Bond. Um, good, I didn't do it. Um,
0: I, Shockingly, uh, that does not exist.
1: Yeah, it doesn't exist now. Um, and that was another really complicated situation that happened that almost completely buried my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I and and like because I had been fired off that, I already had the sense that like whatever I took next, I at, at least politically I knew in my retarded head that I had to make sure that I finished it, you know? Well, well,
0: just briefly, what, what happened on that film?
1: I, I don't even want to talk about it. It was, it's complicated and, and very dirty, you know? Okay. Uh, And by the way, not my fault. (laughs) Sure. So, uh, I, uh, I ended up doing this one and I was offered a bunch of different scripts. I mean, like, I remember like there's scripts floating around like Charlie's angels, you know, or what was it? Uh, Zathura, the sequel to Jumanji. I mean, they offered me that and I turned it down flat out, you know? Yeah. Um, and and the executives called me up going why and like <laughs> i just i just didn't like it you know uh-huh. um, and i remember reading this thing about motorcycles and it was a really terrible movie like the script was really bad yeah. um, but then in my head i was like wow i can really do some really fun action sequences with this and and uh and the colors and the bikes and and uh and the sense of speed these are just like aesthetics that i could have real, a lot of fun with mm-hmm. And then just the entire idea of like sort of taking the Bruckheimer humor and then flipping it and, and just going extreme with it. You know, because Bruckheimer films, as much as they're action films, always have like this sort of snarky humor to them. Yeah. I thought, well, why don't I just take that snarky humor and just like put it on crack, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also and I, people will never believe this, but I swear to God, look at the time frame of when I made Torque back and like I started shooting that in two thousand two. Around two thousand two, in the beginning of two thousand two, there's an Andy Warhol exhibition in Los Angeles, right? And I went to that thing, and I studied Andy Warhol over and over again because I was just fascinated by what he was doing with pop culture and how he was ta- he was appropriating like a Campbell soup can and then replicating it and making it mean something else, right? And I thought there was a sense of humor to it too that really appealed to me. So uh, I was absorbing a lot of Andy Warhol, <laughs> and then when I did Torque, I started doing that with Pepsi cans. You know, <laughs> like I don't think I even had like a real conscious reason why I was doing it. I just that thought the repetition of of a pepsi can and a logo would be really hilarious through the whole movie and to the point where i wanted to i want what i my my initial intention was to get to a point where i use pepsi so much that by the time uh... the two girls faced off they like there'd be a big pepsi logo behind one girl and a coca-cola logo against the other and and it would be a f- over soda cans you know but but when i when i got got there on the date coke turned me down and obviously i was stupid uh... why would coke ever agree to do something like that right but pepsi sponsored the movie but they're okay so i put a mountain dew can on the other one i still felt it was like a battle of sodas even though it's owned by the same company i remember like i remember like when i released the movie everybody attacked it as if like oh look at how they're trying to sell you know pepsi to us and look at this obvious scene where the product placement is there and it just blew my mind that people could not get that joke it was like insane to me
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting, like, when that movie came out, it was kind of like, um, you know, at the time, like, Michael Bay was doing all of his kind of stuff, and I think it was kind of lumped in with those those other kind of movies as, oh, this is that kind of movie, but, like, an extreme version of it, you know, I... (laughs) Go ahead,
1: I, I remember that Michael Bay just had a lot of hate, which, by the way, I like his work a lot. I think he's actually a very good director. Mm-hmm. I mean um, – and I'm not even going to, like, quantify that as in, oh, he's bad at dialogue or blah, blah. He's a good director, period. Like, you don't make movies like that with no skill, you know, and he's shown a lot of skill in his movies. Um, but um, I think but people had a, a certain amount of animosity towards him because they just hated this whole uh, – at that time, there's a lot of video directors popping in, you know? And so <clears throat> they saw me doing, like me being a big pop director, doing an action movie. They thought like I was basically Michael Bay too. And I think the internet just wanted to kill Michael Bay. And they couldn't get to Michael Bay. But they could get what they thought was his spawn, you know? And they, they, they came out and attacked this movie and attacked me. And quite frankly, they won, you know? Because it killed my career for like eight years.
0: When you say it killed your career, you, you mean as a feature director. But yeah, not, as a, not as a commercial music video director at all.
1: Uh, no. Um. Uh, there was a little period after I had come back into it. Because when you drop out of the music video world, like even three months, at least back in, in that time frame, where it was so competitive and there's so many hot directors floating around at that time, and, and, the, and, and the only way you stay hot is by doing the primo video at the time. Like, And I was gone for a year and a half. It was hard to get back into it. Like, It was like you would really have to like, work hard to like, try to get back into the flow and become the person that would be the number one recommend as opposed to like you're the guy that like, you write with five other guys and there's definitely another person that's the hot one that's the number one recommend you know and all my career because I've always sort of sw- switched out between pop and rap and whatever I never specialized in any specific music um, I've always been sort of the number two number three guy uh, because like for instance if you wanted to do like you know a rap video Hype Williams would always be the number one guy because he's the one that specialized in it right if you wanted to be like a rock guy it'd be McG at the time you know like if you wanted to be like cool alternative guy or whatever, you know, you'd be Spike Jones. Like I would always like get those jobs, but it was, I would, I would never be the number one choice cause I was never the number one person in any field. Cause I kept doing so many different things that it, you know, it would dilute the brand essentially.
0: When did you start doing commercials? Was that relatively early into your career? Um, I, you know, I started doing it,
1: gosh, what happened? I think like, like what happened was that I shot Torque, right? It was supposed to be released in 2003 but then literally what happened is that I started shooting Torque. A month later, they, uh, DreamWorks came up with Biker Boys, you know, and they greenlit that thing, right? right. Torque was a 72-day shoot. Biker Boys was like a 23-day shoot or something like that, right? They went ahead and put this cheap script together. And then while I was shooting Torque, like within two weeks of it, they started shooting Biker Boys. They wrapped before I, you know, like I was midway through Torque. And then they, not only that, they had cut it together and test screened it before I finished the movie, you know? I mean, they put that movie together so fast, and um, and then by the time like I wrapped Torque, they decided that they were going to take a, a date two weeks before Torque was supposed to open. Torque was supposed to open on January twenty eighth, two thousand three, and Biker Boys came in there and said, uh, you know, we're going to open on January fourteenth. Completely massacred my opening, you know. So all of a sudden, at that point, and and you know, Torque at that point actually screened and got pretty decent uh, uh, test score. <clears throat> and um, and all of a sudden, like the studio said, well, we can't open two weeks after Biker Boys. This is suicide, right? So they said, like, let's ch- just take it off the table and figure out what we're going to do. And then what ended up happening was that as you go down the uh, the the sort of like – like movies don't just get made. You can just drop them out anywhere. You have to sort of position them to to how they open to, against other movies. So Warner Brothers had this slate of movies, and Neil, the producer, had a slate of movies too. And so Neil didn't want Torque to be anywhere near his baby, which was Fast and Furious 2 at that point, because Torque cost $30 million, and that movie cost $80 million, and that was his franchise. So, so he refused to let us open anywhere near it. Then Warner Brothers had uh, Matrix 2 coming out, and Matrix 2 had a whole motorcycle chasing sequence in the middle. And it, that's a right. $300 million franchise, right? So they don't want Torque to open anywhere near that, right? Yeah. And the next thing you know, like you're bumped out, out of the summer and then you're looking at like November, but they have Matrix Revolutions. And again, Warner Brothers wants to protect that and doesn't want any other action films to like dilute in that market. And next thing you know, like, uh, you know, <laughs> they're like January 28th, 2004, the exact same date we wanted before.
2: yeah.
1: And, and I remember at that point, it, it created this sort of like crazy frenzy by the media that the, th- the film got shelved and held for a year because it was so terrible, when really it was just this sort of nightmare of scheduling it around their other schedule.
0: And what were you doing during that period? Were you directing, was that when you were directing more commercials or, or music videos or what, what were you doing while that was all happening?
1: Well, that was a tricky part because they didn't want me to do anything. They just wanted me to keep posting on it. And I mean, at a certain point, like it was a kind of a nightmare situation because they were like re-editing the movie. Mm-hmm. And taking out a lot of my jokes. I had a lot more jokes in there and a lot more visual gags, believe it or not, than what you see there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, <clears throat> and uh, different music cues. So we were experimenting with Post all that time, and they basically didn't want me to do any work. you know. And I was going broke. Um, but eventually, I just had to start doing work. So I started doing a little bit of work here and there just to pay my bills. Yeah. And I remember like getting threatened to be sued and all this other stuff. It was just a nightmare. Um, and then at a certain point, everyone decided that we should do like a week worth of reshoots just to add one more storyline in there um, like that whole opening scene it, it got changed because they decided they wanted to make the hero a little bit more heroic so I reshot the opening I shot a couple like uh, like like shots here and there mm-hmm. and um, so I, I did that and during that that year that we were doing that I did a uh, I did I did my first couple commercials for uh, HSI
0: and how did those uh, come about for you? What was the uh, what was the process in terms of getting them? Were, were you getting boards from an agency and then you had to go on a conference call? And-
1: yeah, I mean, I, I had been at other companies and I always wanted to get into commercials because I also st- studied a ton of commercials. I, I mean, I was a huge David Fincher freak and yeah. I loved all his commercials. You know, right. like, study is real over and over and over. And that's all I really wanted to do. But none of the other companies could ever get me in. And then I had a meeting with Stavros, who owns HSI, and he sat down he's wanted me to come to his company for ages right but the problem is that there's so, so many other big uh, directors there like paul hunter and hype williams and things i didn't know how i could fit in like mm-hmm. you know but he assured me that like he would break me through he said he's great at getting video directors work you mm-hmm. know in commercials. if he can't do it no one else can <clears throat> and then he, we also talked about comic books because he's a big comic book collector he had like a 3 million dollar batman collection he sold nick cage or something like that you know yeah. and, and i'm a huge comic book collector you know and so we just jibed. It's like suddenly I just found a partner that I just knew that like got me. Uh-huh. So I went there, and sure enough, um, you know, I would pitch on the phone and all that. But that that man uh, was true to his word and got me working. And I am completely thankful to him forever. You know. So um, I uh, I ended up uh, I ended up doing some commercials. I and in the early days, it was a big adjustment for me. It was just like. Uh, like movies in that like commercials you're not god you're not on a video you don't get to do whatever you want uh, they board it out you've got to repitch the board you got to repitch you know their idea they come up with the ideas and you you're basically on a certain level you can almost feel like a bitch if you're if you don't really understand the process um but if you understand the process then you understand it's just you're not a bitch you're just working on a different level you know and you're you're uh you're you're interpreting more than you're necessarily creating.
2: You know, yeah.
0: yeah. So, what can you bring to something when you ha- when you get something that's already boarded out and they have a you know a basic idea of what they want from you? What can you bring to them like on the conference call that, that's going to make you stand well, out?
1: You you have to drop your ego because the idea is not yours. Okay, it's someone else's idea. <clears throat> that person who came up with the idea is the auteur. Period. Um, and people like love to give commercial directors all the credit. But the reality is the commercial director is not the auteur. The agency is the auteur, and you have to drop your ego and accept that. You know, These right. commercials are not a reflection of you. They're a reflection of some other guy that was working at a year before you stepped on, and you come in there for two weeks, work on it, and take all the credit basically. You know? but, uh, but there's an agency guy who had to sit there and use his life experience to come up with these ideas. You know? Now, what a director can do from that point on with that particular idea is execute it. You know, and that's really what a director does more than anything else: execution. It's, and what I mean by execution is, you know, put that world together. You know, use your expertise t- um, to to know how to put the colors there, pick the sets. You know, uh, design it. Uh, know the mechanics of how a camera moves, and 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 use your experience of knowing that essentially. Film is a construction job. You point the camera one way, and then you point another. Suddenly, everybody has to move around, and all the equipment has to move. Know the sensibilities, how to organize that. You know, um, know the sensibilities of the actors. Uh, guide them and let them know that because a lot of these people are not filmmakers. You know, it's, it's like uh, some agency people may do commer- two commercials a year, or it might be their first commercial. You know, right. and so your experience of just being on set all the time and coming from that world, you're a conduit to get their idea in the most um, unique in special way and also having a history and, and, and internal gauge of knowing what's been done in commercials and and getting a sense of like what, what type of shots will bore people or what type of ideas will have been seen before and what type of you know like um, uh, image sequencing is something that people will feel like they, is not shocking or not interesting. I mean these are all things that a director does. Um in a music video the big difference is that since the idea is yours, you can manipulate and break that idea and um and and create basically a whole new a whole new way of looking at the idea at, at will. On a commercial you can't do that, you have to stick to the script.
0: And who are you answering to typically when you're doing a music video? Is it, is it typically the label or the artist?
1: It's different on every video. It's, it, it is. It just depends on who you're working with. Uh, every video is different. Some artists are basically puppets of the record label and have no say in it. Some artists are complete divas and you've got to do everything for them. Uh, some artists are just ruled by their manager and some artists want to direct themselves, you know? Right. It just depends on who it is, and you have to gauge each situation, and that's the biggest danger of music videos. You sometimes just don't know who you're, who you're working for and who you're going to end up answering to.
0: Let's talk about Detention. Uh, last week, uh, that opened in, in limited release, and it's, it's a really amazing movie in terms of the way uh, you, you tell the story, you know, how it moves from, from genre to genre while keeping a, a consistency in tone. And it has a really fantastic, vibrant look that's, that's really typical of your work. Uh, I mean, you've spoken a lot about how you financed uh, the movie yourself. Uh, can, can you talk about why you made that choice and, and when that choice was made in the process? I mean, were, were you saving <coughs> up money for several years with the intention of, of financing a film?
1: I saved up money since the day I, uh, I, uh, I left Torque. Um, the, the minute that I finished Torque, I started saving up money. Knowing that I was going to make a movie on my own at some point
0: because the experience was so bad on Torque, or-
1: um, yeah, and I knew that. Um, look, when you get into um, filmmaking, at a certain point, you have to ask yourself a very serious question: What are you in it for? You know, <laughs> are you there just to make a living and um, and create a you know drive cars and get a yacht and all that stuff? None of that stuff has ever interested me. You know, I know I had a Porsche at one point, but I, honestly, I got it for show. I just wanted to impress. I felt like I needed to like make sure that my commercial clients knew that you know I'm you know I'm successful. Therefore, hire me. You know, right? Like, I could give a shit about a Porsche. I could give a shit about like having a big house. I could give a shit about any of that stuff. You know, I'm just a guy that just wanted to make like like dreams, and that's all i cared about. You know, I told myself when I was in high school, I could be a doctor. And I could uh, live to 85 years old and um, be a successful doctor. And I could live a very happy life. I'm pretty sure I could have, you know? Mm-hmm. Or I could be a filmmaker. And all these things that you've grown up with, all these things you've dreamt about, you could try to pursue them. And at 85, you could die and be a failure. You could have never made something. You could, you could have made something and people say it's like the worst movie ever. Like I could have made torque and people say it's the worst movie ever. But ultimately – if I pursued it and then I died, but I knew I put 100% into it, would I be happy? And the answer is not only would I be happy, I would be happier than, than if I had been a doctor. Because if the journey is, you know, um, if you're just seeking the journey to get to the goal, we all end up in the same goal. We all end up dead. You know, We all die. Yes. Ultimately, that journey is so much more important than necessarily the things you achieve in it. And I just knew that the journey of trying to be a filmmaker would be just so much more fun and so much more rewarding. Than achieving whatever the hell the other life would, you know? Yeah. So I remember like getting to a point in music videos and commercials where I, I was very successful and everybody did want to work with me. And I felt like I could, all, you know, pretty much have run of as many jobs as I want. But ultimately, what was I in it for? Was I just there to book more jobs and just get rich, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the reason I got into it. I wanted to tell stories in my own way and put myself out there. And I'm willing to uh, tell everybody else's stories, like music videos and commercials, and put 100% of myself into it, and use every piece of power that I have to give them those things. And if they give me some money for it, then one day I'll be able to use that money and then tell my story. You know, And that's what it came down to.
0: And you've spoken a lot about the style of detention, and that you wanted to make a film that was sort of at the pace of, of the young audience that would be watching it. Did, did that style uh, come from the story for you, or did the form sort of in- inform the story?
1: Um, well, the story was something that um, uh, my co-writer and I wrote together over a course of three years. And initially, it was just a type of story that we wanted to tell. You know, like it starts off with um, what is the story we want to tell. And I've never been interested in sort of genre work that, that stayed by itself. If you even look at my music videos, you'll see that a lot of that stuff is mixed genre stuff. I'm, like, mixing in sci-fi elements or special effects elements that, that denote other types of genres within within things, you know? And I'm always mixing in comedy with sexy and, you know, things that you you normally wouldn't do. Like, if you look at other people's sexy videos, they are straight-up sexy, you know? But if you look at toxic, there's a huge sense of humor to it. Yeah. And that's that's very specifically my view of it, you know? I like to mix things, and, and um, it's the way I view the world. So uh, when I did detention, it was going to be more of an extension of how I get entertained personally. I wanted to make something that would make myself laugh and smile. Period. That was my first agenda, and that was uh, uh, what my co-writer and I decided that we both had a sensibility, and we wanted to do something that made ourselves laugh. You know? Yeah. But but I don't laugh at things like scary movie. You know, like uh, that sort of super broad comedy. It has to be a bit more subtle. It has to be kind of overt on on a surface level, Mm -hmm. and then super subtle. Uh, under that part two do you know what i'm saying yeah that's a very hard thing to achieve and that's what i love doing more than anything when i do art um i like this sort of overtness that you take at one level but then if you think about it for two seconds uh there's another layer to it too so we wanted to make a very layered movie and that's what we did
0: and uh, I, I think that's the kind of stuff that's also misunderstood the most too
1: it uh, is it, it and it's the type of stuff that uh Gets thrown back in your face more more often than not. You know, and a lot of times people do not understand my videos because there is an overtness and there's a subtlety at the same time, and they'll either swing to, they'll generally just go for the overt stuff and miss the 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 second layer altogether. You know?
0: Yeah, I think they typically see like a lot of your stuff is so aggressive that that's all they, that they can see typically. I think they don't they don't see what what other intentions you might have underneath it.
1: Yeah. So, um, and how you do you
0: know, navigate that though? I mean, how do you, uh, do you think about that when you're making something like detention?
1: Yeah, because a lot of that subtlety is in the dream logic of the editing or image sequencing, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, the cleverness. I mean, I'm gonna call it clever, whatever, but uh, there's, there's no, I don't really know any way to put it into words, but there's a cleverness in terms of image juxtaposition or sequencing or ideas, you know, like ultimately when we talk about filmmaking, we think of it on a very technical level. But ultimately, what we're really dealing with are like dream space memories, you know, and, and sequencing these things. And the sequencing of, like, say, a sexy image next to a sexy image has never been interesting to me. It's like, it's just a sort of through line that is easy to grasp and whatever. I like to do like something sexy, then, then, go, then make the audience think of something funny, then go to something that's possibly sad, and then go back to something sexy again, you know? And I like that sort of journey, that, that conflict. Um, detention is a lot of that going on. It's like scene to scene. One minute you're laughing, next minute you're cringing. Next minute it's it's a horror film. Next minute it's you're embarrassed, you know. Um, and just in the structure of it, within scene to scene, is there. But then shot to shot, you know, yeah. uh, it's very been constructed uh, using that sort of uh, thing I've been developing for years and years and years.
0: When you were making it, were you expecting uh, a studio to give it a big theatrical release? And, and uh, like, what were you expecting from the film when when you made it?
1: Um, the answer is I don't know. I really didn't, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't know, um, I just wanted to make it and, and I wanted to make it much cheaper than I did for sure, but it ended up costing a lot more and I was just stuck in it and I had to go all the way with it, you know, like trust me, I didn't want to spend every dollar and the next two years of every dollar I make to, on this thing, you know, but, uh, once I got into it, there was only one way to make this right. And so I ended up getting into a money pit where I just had to like either complete it to its fullest extent, or quit the project. And I'm, you know, there's no way I was going to quit.
0: And and how do you feel about it now? After after you made it, what how did you feel about the finished film?
1: It's it's the greatest work I've ever done in my life, and I know it. You know, it's the mm-hmm. it's the um, it, at this point in 2012, it's it's the best piece of art I've ever done in my life. Um, um, you know, I, I'm obviously proud of it, but on a certain level, I'm tired.
0: <laughs> right. So, uh, Are you tired of talking about it?
1: Uh, I'm getting to that point you know it's interesting I've gone on this press tour where you talk about it over and over and over and you answer the same questions over and I completed the movie like you know a year ago yeah and and I'm already on to a bunch of other ideas that I've been thinking about in my head so it's like it's just sort of like clarifying it and also it's like you know I've done this like dog and pony show taking a shot in the dark that hopefully it'll just get people out there to see the movie and, um, and nobody really saw it, you know, like very few people saw the movie. So it's like, sometimes you feel like you're just talking in circles and nobody's listening, you know? So,
0: yeah, you know, it's a strange thing because, so I saw it on Friday at in, in San Francisco and there was, there was a smallish audience there, but the audience really responded to it. And, and some, some audience members, uh, were going crazy over it and, and loved it so much. Like there was a, a group of kids in front of me and they were like, when it ended, they stayed past the credits, and they were like, oh, I wish there was more, you know, like, they they really responded to the film.
2: Yeah,
1: and it, and that makes me want to cry, <laughs> it really does, you know, yeah. that's a beautiful story, thank you.
0: This film is made for, for a certain audience, but it's, it's you know, it, it is one of those things where I, I feel like that audience might not find it theatrically, it's going to find it, you know, on, um, on DVD or Blu-ray or VOD or whatever.
1: Here's the one thing I do know, okay, like, I've been in the music video uh, business for very long, okay, mm-hmm. and... I um, For a long time, and I know that I had a chance, uh, um, being in the video, uh, video business, that I could affect the way people think, you know, uh, mm-hmm. through pop. Um, and I knew I was going to do it in one way specifically. Like um, when the pop stuff started coming back, um, there was a decision I had to make back in like 97. I remember I was doing a Backstreet Boys video, and, um, and they pitched the record company pitched it to me as a white Jodeci, right? Yeah. And, um, and Jodeci was like this R&B sex group, right? Black right. group. And I was like, there's no way they're an R&B. They're not Jodeci. What they are, they're like five little Michael Jacksons, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew that the song and and things, and also I'm very aware of demographics. I knew that I was Gen X and Gen Y was much wider, you know? Yeah. So I, I had a conscious decision that this this thing could really play to Gen Y. And they're all like, you know, eight, ten years old at, at that point. And I was like, okay, we're going to make a movie. We're going to make a video for kids. And I, we came up with this thriller concept. And I remember, like, when I was casting the dancers for this, this castle in Transylvania, theoretically in the 19th century. At -hmm. that point, like, when I wanted 30 dancers, you know, there was a big question there. You know, do I cast a multiracial thing in 19th century Transylvania? You know, that wouldn't be real. But something clicked in my head. Um, I remember back in high school, uh, my my um, my my drama teacher, Hal Miller. Uh, back in 1990, did this play of Mice and Men, right? Yeah. And the best actor in our school was a black kid, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He cast the black kid as the lead guy, you know? And well, this is not back in Texas, okay? So yeah. a lot of parents were not happy about that, but he did it, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Broke the mold because, you know, and even though it was in the 1930s and theoretically a black guy would not be that character and get accepted by all the white people and stuff,
2: yeah.
1: he, he was the best actor, so he, he, he casted it non-racial, you know? Yeah. And not only that, he casted me as the black guy, you know?
2: Uh-huh. So,
1: so I, I remember like, ah, oh, fuck, I have to play the black guy. How am I going to work this out? But I just had to do it, right? You know, it was embarrassing on a weird level because it, it made me confront my own Asianness and be a black guy <laughs> at the same time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it, in, in, a, in a school where I was already uncomfortable being an Asian there anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember when I did Backstreet Boys, which is only seven years after that experience, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, something clicked in me. and said, you know what? I'm not it doesn't matter if it's real or not, you know, I'm going to mix this up. You know, I'm not making a, like a video about the 19th century. I'm making a video about the 20th century and what does the 20th century look like? I want it to look like it's mixed because I remember, like, remember if you grew up through the nineties, you know, it was a racially tense period. Mm -hmm. Like we had the race riots in 92, you know, OJ a couple years, you know, you know, whatever. Um, like it was, it was just a really, Crazy time. Black people were fighting with white people and Asians, who the hell knew where, where we were, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, but I, you know, doing all those gangster rap videos, black people were so kind to me, you know? Like it was a really amazing thing. They, um, as much as people were afraid of their neighborhoods, and yeah, there was drugs and there was a lot of bad stuff going on, yeah. they, they really accepted me because they just saw me as someone who wanted to do good work. And I think they realized that. And, um, and so I just knew there's good in people. So I wanted to see a world where everyone blended together a bit more. So I did that with those videos. So the next generation of pop—if you remember pop back in the '80s—Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, New Kids on the Block, yeah. you know, New Edition, or Menudo—they're racially separated. You know, you had your white side and your black side. The only people that integrated it was Michael Jackson. You know, right? So, um, so when I went back the second round with the Backstreet Boys and Britney and all that stuff, you started integrating all the dancers. You know. Mm-hmm. And now all the dancers are like multiracial. Now, today, after many, many years of pop videos, essentially putting swag into white people and white people, you know, bringing their vibe to black people, and it's all sort of interfused. If you see a a white person take a stage and he dances with like 15 white people, people would go, That's so fucking weird, you know? Right. People would go, That is strange. The the kids today, after many, many years of pop and just being ingrained with those type of images, now expect a multiracial world, you know? And and they're, they're, it's an amazing group of kids. They're, I, and I, I, I seriously, in my head, I don't know if it's true. In my head, I think, okay, I had something to do with that. Like I, I I mixed up these videos and I was very specific about it. And now you have this new generation of kids that are really amazing. They're like the least racist, least sexist, most progressive, least homophobic, most amazing group of kids ever, you know? And so I wanted to make a, make a make a movie for them, you know?
0: Yeah, you know, when I was growing up in the nineties, watching your videos on MTV, and and you would see all kinds of different races represented in in a Britney Spears video or so on, that never looked strange to me or or to I don't think very many people of my generation, uh, which is obviously a generation a bit older than the the generation you made detention mm-hmm. for. Um, it it always felt like a natural thing to me as as I uh, I grew up in a relatively multi ethnic environment, and and those videos felt like a a representation of the mix of people I saw in my life.
1: That's that's the beauty of pop. Pop mixes things together. You know, rock stays rock, rap stays rap, and yeah. they're both great things and great things about them. But where rap, you know, rap, rap, and rock and hip hop and all that fuse together is pop. And if it mixes in pop, you don't want to see by the end it goes through that mixture. That that the that the formula that comes out is one color or another. It better be mixed up. That's what pop is. You know.
0: Right. I'm curious about the the shift in your career from doing a lot of music videos in the 90s and, and early 2000s to, to doing very few of them comparatively today. Uh, is that a result of the kind of uh, dwindling budgets in music videos?
1: Um, I, you know, the budgets I could actually deal with because, you know, I started in low budget and I can always end up in low budget. That's not an issue. And, you know, like, I've done DSLR shoots and stuff, like, um, and I, you know, I can edit myself. I, I, I can do anything, really, Um the budgets are not a problem for me. Um, the issue is the control. S- like, there's a new generation of video commissioners that that seem to not protect the director very much, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard. Um, it's like a weird combination. The-, the premium videos that are the big sort of big videos... Mm-hmm. Um, it's becoming more and more like the artist comes up with the idea. It becomes vanity projects, you know? Yeah. And I'm fine with that. I've done plenty of vanity videos where you go in there and you interpret the artist and you uh, you execute to the fullest degree as a director um, what they're thinking. Like all my Britney videos, are, they're not vanity, but they're, she comes up with the initial idea and I sort of execute that, you know? Mm-hmm. But like there's a certain like sort of um, thing going on now because it's like there's so many directors competing for very few premium videos. Right that there's, like, so much control by the labels to do it exactly the way they want, you know? Um, I, I don't feel like there's a lot, lot of places for me to contribute, you know? Like, it just starts feeling like the edit's just going to get ripped away, or, you know, like, the concept is just going to go um, astray. It just doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of control there. And then on the flip side, when you, even when you get to, like, the, the lower budget stuff, it just seems like uh, they uh, – you. There's a, you know, I, I did a Latron video where, like, they spent 10000 bucks and I, I, I spent 80000 more of my own dollars on it, and at the end of the day, they ripped it apart. They didn't even care. It's like they just chopped it up however they wanted to. I mean, so on a certain point, I guess the point is there's just a certain lack of respect for directors. It's, it's almost like we become commodities because the equipment is so cheap, and everybody can edit and whatever. It's like the turnaround on an edit, like... If you're editing on three-quarter tape and you said, okay, I want to insert uh, a close-up here, it would take time. You would have to like, load in that tape, rewind, go and all that stuff like that. But now with like, you know, nonlinear editing systems, you know, swapping out and coming up with new ideas is instantaneous. So it becomes democratized, but, but it's so democratized it's almost like mob rule now. You know? So it's very hard for me to do videos unless I feel like uh, I can work with somebody that, that really trusts me and wants to collaborate me- with me. And to me, collaboration doesn't mean you listen to everything I say, but you will really take what I have to say seriously and put that in consideration.
0: Have you found music videos are becoming kind of more like commercials?
1: Yeah, like, in it, on many regards, it is becoming more like commercials because also, you know, remember, like, it, the video industry was only created, like, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah. So, uh... So you know, like in the early days, it was like the Wild West Commissioners didn't know anything filmmakers barely knew anything. so when Russell McCahey would go in there and 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 uh start doing things or Jeff Stein, they basically just had free reign to do whatever they wanted and then you know you had the your next generation of the fincher you know Dominic Senna era, and you know they they sort of took control by being assholes, you know like they made people afraid of them um you know, because because at that point, all of a sudden, it became a little more corporatized, and people kind of knew the structure a little bit more. So the only way to gain control was being complete fucking dicks. You know, <laughs> so like that's the Mark Romanek, you know, uh, David Fincher sort of like auteur, you know, aspect of it. And then and then I think there's like a little version of it, like that came out with Spike Jones, where you know instead of being like a dick, uh, which I heard, if you really look at the way he operated, he was actually being a de- he did it so charmingly, he charmed people genius that people sort of like came to him and sort of worshiped him. And then and then when my generation started coming in there, you know, like at that point the industry kind of like had been doing it for like 15 years and they all knew the structure, and all of a sudden basically it got commoditized and now it was like another sort of corporate strategy and people kind of knew what directors should do. So now you had directors that had to behave. And and my entire career has been this this crazy tightrope of like 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 doing everything the record companies want. And doing what's right, and um, and getting my say, and like finding the most political way to like like weave through it. It's dangerous, but right now I just feel like I, I don't know how to balance on that rope right now. So I've avoided it before. My work just gets really shitty.
0: Yeah. Where, where do you see music videos going? Do you think they're gonna gonna go more in this kind of direction of of more control, or what? What do you see for the future of music videos?
1: I don't know. I really don't. Um, it's um, I, I, I'm gonna attempt to do some more videos this year. Uh, you know. I did a video last year that was just wildly out of control, like it was like the worst experience I've ever had, and I had to take my name off it, you know, Um, but um, that was a scary experience. Um, Well, what happened in in that video? Oh, I I can't even talk about it, so, like, yeah, the one good thing is I am a professional, and uh, unfortunate for everybody listening, uh, (laughs) I am a professional.
0: Sure. Well, tell me, the, the video that you put, um, put 80000 of your own money into, what, what was the, the impetus kind of behind you uh, putting so much of your own money into it?
1: I mean, I thought that I was doing something really amazing, uh, and, I, and I just saw it, and I felt it, and I was in love with what I was doing, and I was inspired. And um, if they couldn't come up with it, then I was going to do it. And I, I had this sort of trust that they would, they would appreciate what I was doing and, and um, feel that, you know? And they didn't, you know, when I put turn in my edit, you know, there's always that weird process, especially when you do an effects video where the effects aren't done and the rhythm of it doesn't come together. And like my stuff is just so rhythmically put together, like like it's like a it's like scaffolding that that's really, really, you know, like fragile. Like it it it, it only comes together when that last piece comes together, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I remember like giving them the rough cut and they just didn't like it. They hated it, you know? So, um, they started ripping it apart. And I can honestly say, I, I swear to God, if you look at Ladytron's version of their edit versus my version,
2: mm-hmm. I-,
1: I think my version is clearly the better of the edit, you know? Like, and I'm, uh, you know, and maybe I'm just talking flat ego, but I really, I love my edit and I do not like their edit, you know? Yeah. So, um,.
0: So, so is is that a common problem? Uh, you know, because so I work in a lot of uh, visual effects heavy videos. I notice that you know, with me, like I don't want to show a client something until it's like it's as done as possible because I don't feel like they're going to understand what it's going to look like. You know, I mean, is is that a typical problem for you uh, when you're doing it, this kind of stuff? It
1: depends on the complexity of the effects and how they affect the rest of the video. You know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it could be like the storyline is so strong. Like my Muse Nights of Sidonia video had effects in there but the storyline was so narrative and so structured and beat it out that you could watch it without the effects and go oh the effects are going there and I completely see what's going to happen you know yeah uh, but then sometimes it's like uh an abstraction like Ladytron where it's a little like a Jason Pollock painting where you, you if you put a couple splatter paints in there you're never going to see the whole thing until that last paint drop is in there you know yeah. and and um and those type of videos are the hardest to sort of sell you know um yeah. you have to have you have to have a client and and artist that has a 100,000% faith in you. Like, for instance, my Blink-182 video. There is no way you can re-edit that video. That thing is a one-take video done three times. Right, and, yeah. And Nicole Ehrlich, uh, who commissioned it, and Blink-182, who commissioned it too, they just trusted me. And so I did the whole video, you know, they gave me the freedom to do it, and it came together, and you know, there's no changes in something like that. If they wanted to change one thing, <laughs> it would have just unraveled that whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you work with a uh, a visual effects artist? It's completely different on everything.
1: You you use different techniques and different methodologies. Mm-hmm. If anything, um, I always try to come up with a new way of working on the next video or commercial. So I'm, I'm not only am I exploring new ideas, I'm I'm exploring new methodologies. You know, so one day it might be I want to do compositing, and uh, next minute I want to do you know body swapping or live on set, and next minute it might be a more organic thing. And- Next minute I want to do in-camera flares, but next time I want to do flares, you know, in post and stuff like that. And the methodology changes the dynamic of who you work with and how you work with.
0: You did a really wonderful spot for Saab called Transformer, which is almost all visual effects in in which we see a jet transform into a Saab. Uh, Can you talk a bit about how you worked uh, with the VFX supervisor on that?
1: Um, that's digital domain and I work with them and, you know, we had like a million dollar effects budget on that. So you go into a room and you talk to 30 artists and, and, uh, and it's the digital domain process. They have like their own, um, their own render department. They have a modeling department. They have an action department. They have a storyboarding department. I mean, it's like you literally go through the whole thing, and, and that thing, that whole process takes like two or three months and stuff like that. And or on the flip side, you work with like a, a smaller company that you just literally go in there and you you sit over someone's shoulder and say, um, like, "Roto that out." No, "Roto this." No, um, like, "Make that make that edge line softer," and, and and oh, and soften that. You know, it's like. It just it just ranges according to what it is. It's like everyone always asks like what's the process? The process changes. It doesn't matter. Like once you know the techniques uh, and the technical stuff, which is the easiest part to learn, um, it's really about the ideas more than anything else. What's your taste level? That's all that counts.
0: On the kind of other side of things, you've you've recently been doing a lot of uh, like a lot of DSLR stuff where you're you're DPing your own your own things like the um, the Adidas um, uh, my coach video which you directed and shot yourself on a uh, Canon 5D. Uh, which it, it's a really inspiring and, and kinetic ad with with this shallow depth of field kind of bringing you into the world of the of the various athletes in the ad. Uh, I'm curious about the like what what made you want to shoot it yourself and and why on a 5D?
1: Because uh, it looked like fun.
0: <laughs> was that was that how you pitched
1: it? I don't remember how I pitched that particular job but sometimes you talk to an ad agency and you just know that they want you more than anything like they're willing to basically trust you and that was one of those agencies that I could just tell off the phone call that it really didn't matter what I said they just wanted to work with me mm-hmm. so I pitched this idea of doing it natural on 5Ds and stuff and they were just on board I could have said let's do it slick and, and shiny and red cameras they would have gone that way too they just literally just wanted to work with me and see what I came up with. So I decided to do something I had never done before, which is that style. Um, And I just went for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it is just, like, it's something I hadn't done before, and I thought, you know, it would be really cool to do it. (laughs) Um, It it just comes down to uh, execution. Like, I don't do one thing. I do everything, you know? Um, Right. I think it just comes down to... uh, experimentation, if there's anything that links all my videos together more than visual effects or more than an organic quality or more than a shooting style, because I like to switch those up,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's an editorial uh, backbone. Of, uh, and it's not even like the edits, because those edits can change too, but it's a sequencing of ideas more than anything else. It's like what, what idea leads to the next one. That I'm really hip on.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of sequencing of images, uh, I need to ask you about the legendary cisco thong song video you did uh one shot in particular combines uh what you mentioned earlier the the funny and sexy where you have the camera move past a hot dog that's getting slathered in uh in mustard to uh, a bunch of uh, bikini clad girls dancing on the beach how did you come up with that shot
1: uh i wanted to show a dick on screen so <laughs> so, so i so i put a hot dog there yeah it's, it's such a stupid video you know um I mean, many, many, for many, many years. Like one of the things I always avoided were booty videos. Yeah. Uh, um, I, you know, because if you remember back then, you could have easily done a ton of like sort of hoochie mama videos, and I, I, and for the most part, I avoided them. Like I somehow I just avoided them for many, many years of working in R and B and rap. And finally, one day, Def Jam comes up and says we're going to do the thong song, and you know they had a price. It was like a million bucks. I just saw a million dollar booty video. I'm like, all right, let's go. You know. And I was like, okay, if I do a booty video, I might as well just sort of embrace the bootiness of it. But um, you know, it was like Torque. Like on a certain level, thong song is very much like Torque. You know, like it it deals with a subject I don't really believe in. You know, yeah. I don't. I could give a fuck about thong parties on beaches. It sounds like fun, but it's not really my thing. You know.
0: Well, so, I love how it opens with his daughter. You know, it's yeah, it's so such a I, weird mix of elements.
1: Yeah. So I just sort of like took the piss out of that video. You know.
0: You direct a lot of international spots in Japan, France, and so on. Uh, you recently did a series of ads for a Russian bank, uh, starring Bruce Willis. How do you go about working internationally in terms of communication with crew and clients and, and all that?
1: Each each country is completely different, you know, and they each have their own structure, and um, and uh, they it's just completely uh, like like. Geographical, in terms of like the culture, you know, like China is different from Russia. Russia is different from Spain. Spain is different from Germany. Germany is different from Japan. It's like like you're just dealing with the world. Uh, Although funny enough, the structure of making uh, uh, movies, the AD slash camera department slash grips, you know, is the same everywhere. But the dynamic of the power struggles and how much they respect directors are so radically different. That Bruce Willis spot, for instance, um, the uh, the two Russian bank owners. Just gave me free reign. Like, they, they hired on an advertising agency. It was like the two Russian bank owners said they wanted Bruce Willis. They hired an ad- advertising <laughs> agency, but then they just bypassed him and just let me do whatever I wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it was really interesting. They didn't put any edits in it or whatever. I just literally shot it. Uh, I I even like constructed one of the stories all, all together myself, like the one that's um, Bruce Willis jumping from car to car. Right, uh, yeah. That's my idea. Like, the agency really didn't have anything to do with that. And, uh, and they just let me do whatever I wanted and just gave me money to do it. I mean, it was a fantastic situation. I work with Russians any day of the week, you know?
0: <laughs> and what's the typical budget for you? Like, what, what is your kind of budget range um, in terms of commercials uh, these days? Uh, I guess
1: pretty big. Um, i got to be big right now because i got to pay off a lot of debt on this movie. <laughs> um, I, I'd say about a million bucks, probably. It gets you... Pretty much like an average commercial, maybe lower than that. I don't know. You know, I don't. Uh, one thing I have done uh, that I've been very lax about in commercials is that I've let HSI sort of run all that stuff. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't really concern myself with budget. You know, they tell me sort of like a gauge of like how much I can spend, and I try to be creative within that gauge. Mm-hmm. But I don't get into the details of, of how much they bid. I kind of just don't want to know it. You know?
0: So, where do you see yourself going uh, from now in terms of, of feature films or commercials, or what? What do you see yourself doing in the near future?
1: I'm going to do lots of commercials, and I want to do some videos, and I, I want to attack them even harder than I've ever done before. You know, I think I can be a much better commercial director than I than I have been. I think um, the last couple years, it was always sort of like half my mind was in detention, um, um, and now I want to just clear my mind. I've got first, I got to pay off my movie anyway, so I've got to make a lot of money, um, but. <laughs> Two, I, I feel like I'm going to really go to the next level in commercials and and put myself that much harder out there. You know? Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a I understand the structure of commercials a lot more and I understand what they needs to happen. Like for instance, one of the great things about detention is that it let me exercise a style that I've wanted to get out of my system for a long time, which is that sort of like like I call it music's uh, units of mise en scene that happen in camera. There's a lot of that in detention. People keep saying detention's edited really fast. It's not. It's it's actually edited slower than most movies. Believe it or not. It's just a lot of that motion happens in camera. You know, um, but it, that's not useful in commercials because commercials they want options of editing. You know, so they'll end up breaking those complex movements. And so I'm going to really experiment with um, single camera um, lock off styles and stuff like that, and I'm get really good at that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about that.
0: And do you have any uh, jobs coming up that are, that are like that?
1: Um, all of them. I'm, I'm switching my style on all my commercials. Um,
0: and and why, why do that? What, what made you decide to, to change up your style a little bit?
1: Because I do have an idea for another movie that I'm going to do eight years from now. Mm. And it's going to be an unfamiliar style for me. And I need to R&D it and make sure that uh, it's completely solid before I execute it
0: was the ultimate goal for you when you were getting into filmmaking, were you always thinking about making features or were you kind of like, I want to do music videos, commercials, whatever. What what was the, what what was kind of the impetus for you for, for getting into filmmaking?
1: I think I always wanted to make movies. Number one, Um, that's the ultimate goal. But um, I also knew that I wanted to do videos. So I wanted to do it all with an impetus on filmmaking movies, but I, I never saw myself leaving commercials and music videos
0: it seems like so when you direct a, a movie, you really have to take yourself out of the game, and you're not you're not um, you know you're not getting as many jobs, commercial jobs, and you're you're as a film director, you're probably not getting paid as much either uh, as you would be if you were doing.
1: I'm not getting paid at all. I'm spending money, <laughs> like,
0: right, right. But even on something like Torque, you know, when when you're doing Torque, right, you're 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 not getting paid as much as you would be if you were doing commercials. Right? No,
1: when I when I when I finished Torque, um, I think there was a point at which. It released. It bombed. I didn't work for two months, and I had $30 in the bank. And what happened? Uh, I was about to lose my house, <laughs> and uh, I booked a $3 million commercial right in the nick of time, and it saved my life.
0: Was that the, the BT uh, yeah. commercial?
1: Yeah, British Telecom. I needed that job so bad, and it happened, and it saved me.
0: I love that commercial, by the way.
1: Thank you. I worked really hard on that because that, wa- that was my way to climb out of the twerk
0: hole. <laughs> That's a really complicated, uh, very uh, visual effects-heavy spot. What did you get from them initially uh, in terms of boards or a script?
1: Uh, they have signifiers they need in the commercial to sell certain products and stuff. They say that we need, you know, refrigerators here and we need a construction worker and this represents this and they give you like all the ingredients and then I mix them together and cook it how I want and and paint it how I want, you know, but you must hit, you know, the motorcycle guy and you must hit the guy on the desk and you must hit, you know, the cows and things like that, you know. They come up with the initial idea and you are literally just uh, like an executor, you know, so they wanted the, the basic premise is. A world of information done with people jumping around, and you, the information comes to life, you know like that metaphor, and so I constructed all the storyboards out of that, but they didn't have any, they didn 't have any visuals to go with it. It was all my storyboards and, and my sequencing and um, my execution
0: The music is a really great driving force in that piece. Did you have uh, any involvement in the music That is the
1: agency agency a lot of times has a bigger say in music than anybody, you know. And, and also, quite frankly, agencies may have a bigger say in editing, depending on what type of director you are and, and what they need out of you. Like, you are completely at the mercy of the agency. When you get into the commercial world, you are you are part of a giant organization that which starts with, you know, your production company, but then that interfaces with the agency, but the agency has to interface with the client, and the client itself may have several divisions they have to answer to. I mean, you're answering all the way up to, like, you know, when you do British Telecom, you're an, a, essentially like interfacing with the will of the CEO, you know? Uh, so you're not there to be just a frickin' auteur. You're there to sell services, you know? You are, you are the, you are the uh, tip of the spear that they have been carving for years. So you have to respect that.
0: And was that ever frustrating to you as somebody who's a very opinionated you know, filmmaker?
1: Uh, I have gotten much more mature about it. Uh, there, there are times when you know that you're working with an agency that's just so piss poor that, that they are dulling the spear when it should be sharp. And it's obvious, and you just kind of avoid those people and work. You know, I mean, I was working on a very big campaign, and um, I just knew that it was going nowhere because uh, they were so disorganized and um, and and, it w- and just not smart. You know, okay. so like I could have made a lot more money if I stayed on it, and I, I kind of hopped off it. You know, um, but on the flip side, you can work with you know. Uh, incredibly smart people and they'll make you look more genius than you can ever be because they're you know you work there are some geniuses in advertising you know advertising is it's funny uh, Banksy said (laughs) that the problem with advertising it it sucks away all the great artists that could have been doing you know it's just fine arts you know the greatest minds go into advertising now and it's true like I have met some incredible geniuses in advertising that are like breathtaking and uh, when you work with them it's a joy
0: And that was the great Joseph Kahn. You can find this and other SpotCasts on iTunes and at SwayProductions.com. If you have any comments, questions, guest suggestions, please email me at Ron at SwayProductions.com. Please put SpotCast in the subject matter. This is Ron Small saying goodbye.